Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm back. We're back. Lucas Marino is back. So that's gonna that means there's gonna be another high energy, exciting discussion. Lucas, how are you today? I'm doing excellent, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm happy to have you back on. Last time we had a great discussion. We talked about the Coast Guard. We talked about maintenance strategies, and we talked about riding through the eye of a hurricane. You promised me last time that we were going to talk about going through the Bermuda Triangle. So let's hear it. How was that? I know it's uh it's not a very captivating answer but uh you know it's it, there's like no special story that comes behind it but it is a very special place to be uh one because of the lore you know as soon as you're there everyone's aware hey we're in the Bermuda Triangle and you're you know your senses are kind of heightened and your watch team on the bridge the suspicions and and uh and and little stories they grew up with kind of you know, create some chatter and, and, and you're watching all your stuff. And then you realize this is just a really cool part of the world to be sailing in. And, um, you know, I've got no doubt that pilots of ships and planes have experienced like u- unique phenomena there. But uh, I personally haven't witnessed anything like wildly abnormal other than just some like unique mission turns. And, um, you know, for such a beautiful stretch of ocean in an area with so much history, um, you know, there's a, a lot of that history is involved with people that are like fleeing countries in the Caribbean, uh, looking for a better life in America, and they drift into that area because they get caught in the in the uh, in the straits and pushed east. And uh, you know, some of them disappear there forever. You know, which isn't like a happy ending to any story, but um, you know, that perhaps is where a lot of that you know the 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 mystery around the triangle is tied to things like that, you know, um, not just these stories about like planes never being heard from or entire fleets of planes never being heard from again. Um, you know, you could, you could add a little Halloween twist and be like, that's where the, the lost souls of those yearning for a better life go, you know, it's like <laughs> kind of a, it's a motivator for us in the Coast Guard because we want to get people before they get to that point, you know. Uh, they drift that far east. It's pretty crazy, but uh, yeah. So the you know we would we would cut through there because it's kind of along the northeast edge of the um, um, Caribbean, and we would 
had had uh, across that way back in the day when that used to be a very active um, route for drug running uh, along those islands. They would hop those islands. Um, we would we would patrol in and out of there, and uh, it was just kind of eerie at night because you always had your senses on edge, you know. Yeah, but I mean, I I guess it it was you know pretty easy because you're here with us today, so nothing happened at least to you. Yeah, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. And and I was an engineer, so half the time you could have put us anywhere in the world and it wouldn't have been much different for us in the engine room with the exception of, you know, what's the engine room temperature? Because <laughs> it's all naturally ventilated down there, you know? And uh, when you're patrolling up north in the wintertime, it's like a nice cool 60s to 70s in the engine room. But when you're down south, especially in the Caribbean in like the summer, um, it's, you know, it's unbearably hot down there all day, so... Yeah, I could imagine it gets a little warm when it's hot outside. Oh my gosh. I mean, we would, when I was on a 378 foot ship, if we were on both main diesel engines at a standard bell, it'd be like 135 degrees uh, between the engines down on the second level of the engine room. It was, it was hot. Well, awesome. Yeah, no, I'm happy to have you back on. Uh, like, Last time you mentioned, you know, you, you've done some extensive work on the level of repair analysis. And, and to be honest, this was the first time I've heard of that. And so I wanted to have you back on to, you know, to talk about that, kind of give us some detail on that. But before we get into to that, I did have a question last time that we missed. And that question was, you know, it, it kind of revolves around, you know, your leadership style and kind of what you learned um, at least in the Coast Guard in terms of leadership, because, you know, like, at least from a, an outsider perspective, we we look at the military and we we kind of see a strong leadership style. And so I just wanted to ask you about that. Like, what did you learn about leadership in the Coast Guard and, and kind of can you give us any some tips on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's actually one of my passions is leadership. I don't know if you can probably get that from some of my posts on LinkedIn, but um, you, we kind of take it for granted when we're uh, going through the process in the military. Uh, you know, you assume you know boot camp is exactly what you uh, you know expect it to be and more, uh, unless you've been through it before. It's a shock to the system. But you know, much of our structured leadership in the Coast Guard uh, mirrors that of our partner services, like the the U.S. Marine Corps and uh, Navy predominantly. But um, you know, our boot camp is modeled after the Marine Corps boot camp. Um, our officers are primarily developed through the Coast Guard Academy and officer candidate schools, just like the Navy kind of does. Um, and we have a very strong Mustang or uh, LDO accession path um, that mirrors what the Navy does as well. Although our, our programs are unique to the Coast Guard, unique to our culture, unique to our um, policies, perspectives and environments. So, yeah, the, the biggest thing for me was, you know, when you come out of when you come out of basic training, you're you're somewhat programmed to uh, enter the service with open ears and and the the will to do what's asked of you for the mission, which is really what they they strive to do is kind of break you down and build you back up, get you confident, but also get you listening, break down all those barriers that you come into the service with. And it sounds kind of you know it might sound kind of crazy. To, to somebody that hasn't been through that process, but it teaches you a lot about leadership while you're there because when they when they're breaking you down, they're showing you that you're being broken down as a team and you can only lift yourselves as a team. So you immediately grasp the concept of teamwork, whether you've been 
formally taught how to succeed in teams or not. Now you're forced into it. You're forced to succeed as a team. Every, every failure and success is a team's failure and success. So they kind of remove the individual from the equation there um, at the base level and basic. And then as you grow in the service, um, you're put in relatively large uh, uh, roles of responsibility at a fairly young age, uh, which, is, which is kind of unique to, to what uh, the service provides. Uh, to give you some perspective, you know, as a junior officer, someone out of the academy, they can be put in a division officer role where they're, they're you know, essentially in the chain of a command for a division and they're both learning and leading at the same time. Um, just by the merit of their rank and, and their, their uh, accession source, they're required to, to be in a certain position. They can only go so low in an organization. So they're forced into learning leadership in a completely different environment than, say, I did when I was enlisted. When I came in enlisted, I worked for really strong chiefs and petty officers. And those old chiefs taught me a lot about servant leadership, which has become a real hot you know, term recently. Um, you learn a lot about leadership through experience. And I was, I was fortunate that the Coast Guard provided me with cl- plenty of learning experience. Um, my philosophy, which you know, I've kind of gained through those steps in service were, um, you know, it's pretty simple, yet it, I think it's very effective. And that's to, A, treat people like human beings, you know, really get to know people. Uh, because when you're in difficult situations, like the ones the military puts you in, you really get to know each other. There's nowhere to hide. Um, you get to know who a person really is. That That is harder to achieve in many non-military environments. And I understand that. So some of your, your people that aspire to leadership roles on the outside of the military really have to work a little bit harder to get to know people like that because they can go home at the end of the day. They don't have to be locked in a little box with somebody for weeks and months on end. Um, also, you want to push people to perform through mastery of fundamentals. The military is all about mastering fundamentals. All of our drills, all of our work in our shops, everything is about the fundamentals of your job. And so we've, we force people to really focus on their fundamentals. As a leader, if you can uh, expect your, your crew to master the fundamentals and you provide them with the resources and positive energy for them to, to get to that point, then they'll flourish because there's there's a lot of people that uh, that just love to to get better at something and build confidence at something and and then show that confidence and they get to show that through the execution of their duties. So you know, for for me in the military, that's kind of what I learned on the way through. I was prior enlisted for nine years. I grew up on ships with some old salty, rough around the edges kind of guys, but every one of those. Yeah, every one of those guys, even though they didn't may not have come across as being the most compassionate leaders, they knew you like the back of their hand. And they knew their shop like the back of their hand, and they knew their job like the back of their hand, and, and they would never let anyone um, come down and mess with, uh, with their backyard. And they were very um, supportive of you, even though it didn't come across as a hug. You got the support you needed. And um, yeah, it, was, it, was, it, it really showed me how accountable they were. And how important trust is. It's a sacred requirement in leadership and you have to work hard to support others so that they can support you and you can't do that without that trust. So I really learned to trust people in uncertain situations where I was you know, completely at the mercy of their expertise and experience to, to make it through 
something with a, with a margin of, you know, success, if you will, you know, you can't get qualified on a ship without other people. You can't learn your job on a ship without other people. And you definitely can't execute a mission at sea or at war without other people. Um, so if anything you do goes against those leadership elements of, you know, being accountable, um, holding trust as a sacred requirement and working hard to support other people so that they can support the team, uh, you'll degrade your effectiveness as a leader and, and it'll erode the team's uh, trust and performance. No, I, I think there's something there. Like one thing I wanted to mention just on that was when you when you mentioned that they focus a lot on fundamentals, the one thing that you often see, at least I've seen in industry, is we don't have a good understanding of like what each role is and what kind of they're supposed to do and the skills required for that. So understanding like what each role, like you have to define the role first and then you can help people. Well, one, pick the right person, but two is also help them focus on those fundamentals. Absolutely. I mean, we really uh, put a lot of faith in the strength of fundamentals. And that's not just because we, you know, see this requirement for everybody to become a master of something and we have to start there. No, it's because those fundamentals actually produce something of value um, for that member at the most, you know, at the most, at the core of what they're doing. So your role, you know, the core of your role um, is exercised through those fundamentals. And, and, you know, to take, for example, something that applies to everyone on a, on a, on a ship, uh, regardless of what your your rate and rank are and is very fundamental to shipboard life is damage control. You know, if there's a fire or flooding or some type of damage to the vessel due to due to engagement with a with an enemy or whatever, um, you don't have anyone else to depend on but your crew. So everyone on that ship has to be proficient in damage control. And we, you know, immediately when upon reporting, we start driving those fundamentals of damage control into someone's uh, brain so that they can they can produce results in a damage control situation without having to think much. We want muscle memory, and we want it to be like a, a law in their heads. These are these are you know not debatable things. This is how you you know you stop flooding. This is how you stop fire. This is how you combat these things so that they can move quickly and without much instruction when when the real thing happens. So you know if you translate that kind of uh, uh, of impact out into the field. It's absolutely what your what your equipment operators and maintainers are doing. You know, the fundamentals of equipment maintenance for a machinery technician, for a mechanic, you know, they're, they're key fundamentals to a mechanic's job. You know, things even as simple as like, hey, when you take that, uh, you know, internal combustion engine apart, or when you're working on bearings, um, you know, there's a few things, how you handle them, uh, what types of materials you use, uh, you know, while you're, while you're using those, the right tool for the right job. What are the methods of, of, of inserting and removing uh, bearings and and different pieces of equipment, right? So there's all kinds of those fundamentals that they have to grasp before they can move on to the next levels of proficiency. And 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 it's, it's integral to the success of the team. Uh, And the more you can spread those fundamentals across the entire organization that's responsible for those roles and duties, the more consistency you create and the more risk you reduce and the, and the, and hopefully there's a reduction of errors that comes along with that. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I kind of, I kind of look at it more from a, well, I look at it from a kind of a sports analogy where 
like you you put on a you know like a football game and each person on the field has a specific job to do and they're not necessarily like they're all related to each other but they're not the same thing so like the offensive line does a different thing than the quarterback who does a different thing than the running back or and the receivers and so it's like everyone's fundamentals they can be a little different but working in concert you get greatness yes and i'm a huge football fan so you're speaking you're speaking to my core (laughs) (laughs) one thing i guess on that note so you mentioned trust is it more of a like a lot of people they're like you have to earn trust and and you know like it's easy to lose trust quickly but it takes forever to to build it up is that kind of your way of thinking or are you more like we trust you until you fail me and then and then like what's your what's your philosophy on trust yeah and that philosophy has changed over the years i I, that's a really good question um i didn't grow up in a place where we trusted a lot of people around us that we didn't know so when i came in the military um it was a little bit it was hard for me at first to realize i had to let go and trust people first and and give them the opportunity to to either perform or or fail in regards to that trust and you know the the military has taught me that and at least in in professional roles you should trust the the person first um, and allow them the opportunity to maintain that trust and you know you shouldn't you shouldn't automatically assume that they're going to fail you and I think that that is hard for 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 some people to do because you know the whole trust but verify thing is real and, and that doesn't necessarily mean you don't trust right you're trusting but verifying and that that has to happen um, but you know that's all predicated on the fact that you allow trust to occur you have to allow trust to occur first and then monitor the relationship and monitor the situation and give the person the benefit of the doubt um, I think it would be a really difficult world to live in. If every time uh, you hired somebody or you brought someone onto your team, um, they they were distrusted, right? Um, of course, you know you have to understand that you have a responsibility as a supervisor or as a coworker to trust that member as a person, but maybe um, not put them in a situation where they're going to get themselves in trouble. Um, technically, right? Um, th- there still has to be that balance, but yeah, I do believe that you should trust the human being uh, element of of that work relationship, and then measure that person's abilities and um, and technical proficiency uh, separately than than necessarily whether they have integrity or not. You know, when I speak about trust, I'm talking about on a personal level. Um, we I used to tell the the the, the members that reported to my unit when I was the chief engineer on board, I'd say, Hey, look, you can tell me all about how great uh, a football player you were in, in high school or how, you know, you come from this awesome family or, you know, all these great things you did before the coast guard or what kind of a great person you are, but we're a show me, don't tell me kind of organization. And we're a show me, don't tell me kind of community as engineers. And I want to see it. You can tell me everything, but I want to see it. And so we would give them the open checkbook of trust and say, hey, look, we assume you're coming here and that you're honest with us. But the second someone starts to erode um, the, the trust associated with, you know, whether that person has integrity or whether I can rely on them to do what they said they were going to do um, in, in the performance of their duties or, you know, whatever the case may be in a, in a kind of a personal relationship with that person at work. As soon as that starts to erode, it's a hard 
hard uh, hill to climb back up. So, you know, I was trying to try to give them the benefit of the doubt first. Yeah. I think there's like, like speaking on that, there's kind of, you see out there are like two big management styles and one is the kind of the micromanager style, which is kind of a lack of trust in my opinion. And then there's the other management style, which is your like Steve Job-esque, like I hired the best people I could and I'm not going to tell them how to do their job. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I, I, I have a hard time uh, with working in an environment where I micromanage. So I tr- I really push to not have that done to others around me. Um, I feel like when you micro, there's a big difference between micromanaging and mentoring people. And if you're micromanaging somebody, you're not giving them the freedom to breathe or perform without, you know, uh, without your direct uh, input on an unrealistic number of things, in my opinion. That's just me. Um, that to me is the definition of micromanagement. If you're literally teaching them the every how and the every why and the every um, step of, of, of your uh, process or your job or whatever, and it's not in a mentorship form where, hey, I'm showing you this for the first time and then I'm going to give you the freedom to, to perform as you should, then you know it's going to inhibit that person and you're not going to get the most out of them. You're not going to earn their complete trust. They're going to feel like you don't trust them. Um, they're not going to feel like they can be free to meet their maximum potential as an employee. And I, I feel like it's just a, re- a recipe for eventual, maybe not disaster, but you know, discontent. You're going to have you're going to have lower morale if you micromanage everyone around you. Now, on the flip side of that coin, I think that as a leader, you are responsible for at least defining what your expectations are, especially if you're not going to micromanage people. And that comes back to that earlier statement I made about having a high standard, you know, when I was on the ship, I gave people a lot of room to, to succeed or fail, but they understood that I was looking at quality as a very important factor in their performance. To me, it wasn't, could you get the job done as fast as possible? It was, can you get the job done as fast as possible, considering that you did it right? Like, did you did the job properly? You know, very rarely do we run into a situation where you should sacrifice quality over speed, in my opinion. And if you do sacrifice that, it should be a a a um, it should be a conscious decision to do that, not just pressure from uh, you know from some type of external motivator that's dragging their performance down. You know, we we see that a lot with equipment availability, right? You know, can you get that engine back up and running? Can you get that piece of equipment on the production line back up and running? Yes. You know, is it going to be the fixed the right way? Is it going to be, you know, recovered properly? If the answer is no, you're increasing the risk of another failure. You're you're reducing the meantime between failures. You are you're teaching people to exist in a culture that uh, isn't necessarily concerned with doing the right thing at the right time. And if you're doing that as a matter of habit, then your culture becomes that. And that is a serious problem. I think if you do it as an exception and everyone's cognizant of the fact that they're not, you know, they're doing this on purpose, but it's not what they want, then, then I think that you're in a little bit of a better position. No doubt. It's something like I've kind of been hammering this point, especially this morning, I, I posted a comment that uh, Suzanne Greenman and I talked about uh, in the podcast that we released, but we talked about um, 
RCM kind of fundamentals and how run to failure is a valid strategy. However, you have to consciously make the decision that it's one that you're going to apply. And when I say consciously make the decision is if you go back to like RCM fundamental kind of thinking, you're picking the lowest cost maintenance strategy for that specific failure mode. So like if there's a light bulb in my house and if, you know, like if it fails, I just go to Walmart or wherever and I buy another light bulb for a couple bucks and and that's just what it is. The cost of failure is essentially zero. And, you know, like there's no safety consequences. There's no environmental consequences. And like the cost of me, you know, doing a, a PM scheduled replacement of the light bulb or doing predictive maintenance on a light bulb would be even higher than that. So we've we've consciously looked at this situation and we've made a decision to use a run to fail strategy. And I don't really see that any different with, you know, like, and it's really any decision making, right? So like what we were talking about was we, we have consciously made a decision to use, uh, to value in this instance, speed over quality, which I, I do agree hundred percent is like, we have to be careful with that because if this becomes every decision, then we're going to have different outcomes than we might want. But if we make that decision, we have to articulate to our people, you know, why we made this decision and kind of our thinking behind it. It's just like conscious decision-making and understanding risk is, is these are two pillars of reliability that I don't think we really talk about very often. Yes. Yeah. Particularly the risk piece, because you know, especially if you're in a leadership position in reliability or maintenance and you're trying to assess and communicate risk to, you know, the higher ups, you're, you're in a position where if you don't translate the value of that downtime um, versus this downtime, right, the faster versus the, the correct, um, you know, maintenance or corrective maintenance action, you know, if you don't learn how to assess that risk and, and relay the value of those decisions, those two options, those, you know, those COAs to, to your leadership and your, uh, your workforce, then you're, you're cutting them both short, you know? Uh, and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that the risk, uh, tolerance that organizations adopt is a little bit more controllable than some people give it uh, give organizations credit for. I think that risk tolerances are adopted over time and can be changed over time depending on the organization's ability to properly assess and mitigate risk. And, you know, if you work for super risk averse, uh, you know, organizations, some of that can be, can be changed. And if you work for, you know, people that like to adopt risk, uh, you can harness some of that too. So I, I think that, you know, being able to speak the language of communicating that risk into values um, up the chain is super important for people in uh, the reliability and maintenance professions. Absolutely. And, and you know, either strategy in terms of being risk averse or risk loving is fine. Like it's correct, right? So it's like your risk tolerance versus mine is different. Right. Um, so, so it's correct. It's just, we have to understand that like the biggest part is defining the risk, kind of understanding the magnitude of that risk 
and then making a conscious decision. Yes. It, it, those those are really the big things behind it. Because, and, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people do very well. No, and we don't really train people on uh, decision-making, you know, decision science or or risk analysis to the level that we probably should considering how much we deal with it. And I, I, I think that that was one of the benefits of, of, um, you know, those years of experience observing risk in different contexts, right? Like, you know, we were talking earlier about equipment going down and, you know, what's the impact of that, that down equipment, right? Like if, if, if equipment comes out of service temporarily, but there's redundancy in the plant, well, then the risk, you know, of that equipment being down is different than if there is no redundancy and everything stops because of that. And we have to learn how to uh, understand, quantify and qualify that risk and then communicate it. And to me, the part that really gets people is the communication part, because we think everyone speaks the same language we do. And that's not uh, how how this works, right? And I, I guess that's kind of where I was trying to go with the earlier point about you know learning to communicate that risk up the chain. A lot of times, it's not the effort of communication that that is the uh, inhibitor. It's the language you're speaking. You know, if I'm talking to the business ops guys about risk, they see risk through a completely different lens. Uh, they see the impact of risk through a completely different lens than say the maintenance manager does. You know, the maintenance manager's risks uh, may have very little to do with the same, you know, equipment down, but a different risk for the business guys, you know, the, the maintenance manager or the person on site managing the repair may be concerned about the risks of, uh, that their workforce are encountering during the execution of the corrective maintenance task, which is, you know, priority one to them is to protect the safety of their people. The, the people higher up the chain may be assuming that that's already in the calculation and, and they're not really looking at that. They're looking at the impacts of the operational, um, you know, status of the plant. And, and that person in the middle has to learn how to, to speak both languages up and down the, the chain. So I think a lot of times just understanding how other people view and speak of risk, it can make a big difference on, on how each of those people in that chain um, digest it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I guess on that on that note, so communication, like communication is obviously a big part of leadership. How do we effectively communicate with our people? Um, I'm going to assume you're talking about both up and down the chain. Correct. <laughs> is that true? Okay. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, well, here's, here's, a, here's another situation, a leadership situation that can get squishy, right? Because you may find that you uh, communicate very differently with people uh, on either end of the chain. Um, and you may find that you can be genuine in both approaches. For example, when I would go down to the engine room and communicate with a watchstander, it was different than if I was communicating with that same person while they were in the middle of a, of a mission and, and safety was more of a concern and, and the, the mission uh, fog was of a concern and things like that. I might change the way I'm communicating. I may communicate less, but make sure that what I say matters more, right? You know, other than shooting the breeze down on watch and just checking the pulse of things to see how, how the watch is going, how the equipment's running, and maybe a little bit more relaxed in that regard. But I think that no matter who you're talking to, whether it be up the chain or down the chain, that you cannot ever sacrifice your integrity during communication. 
Okay, so one, you should communicate clearly. You should try to be succinct, which is probably hard to imagine me doing considering these podcasts. <laughs> um, <laughs> you should be uh, very open and you should be very honest and you should, you should be a good listener uh, before you become a good uh, speaker. So you, you should make sure when you're communicating that you remove those barriers that a lot of us have when, when uh, having a conversation with someone above or below us um, involving the speaking and listening balance. I used to work for this chief who, who told my guys all the time, you've got, you, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? <laughs> chief speaking, listen up. And uh, I always admired that because he was trying to teach them. It was important for them to listen before they spoke and to really digest the information that was coming across before you speak. Uh, because what that does is it gives us the opportunity to, uh, you know, not only uh, speak on a more even line with each other. You know, we're staying on topic. We're, we're, we're discussing the same point. We're, we're, we're balancing the decisions and opinions back and forth, all that good stuff that comes along with it. But it also keeps you from doing that inevitable thing that we all hear we do. And that is you're developing a response before that person even finishes what they're saying. And you completely miss the end of their statement. And that could have been the most important part of what they were saying. Uh, you know, I also think uh, no matter who you're talking to up or down the chain, you'd better be cued into their to their person, to how they're expressing themselves physically, because there's times, especially in a field predominant, uh, predominantly made of men where, you know, and, and things are a little tough and they don't they want to come across as being soft, for lack of a better term, where they feel like they have to tell you what you want to hear and you need to be able to see through that and call it out in two seconds, but do it in a way that's supportive of that person. And I used to find that a lot as an officer, um, that sometimes I'd approach people that were, were far below me in the chain of command. And because of your position or rank, they're, they're, they feel like they have to give you a certain answer. And that's not what I'm asking you for. I'm asking you for your opinion. I want you to give me your honest opinion. And you have to be able to, as a, as a listener, determine whether that person's really telling you uh, what they think you want to hear or what uh, you know, they're really answering the question that you're asking them. And so I think that those are some important things to do that goes up the chain as well. I mean, there were times when I was communicating with the captain where I'd have to catch myself, you know, I'm getting ready to say exactly what I just told that, you know, to, you to be looking out for with someone else. I need to learn how to communicate my feelings and my opinions and my emotions on this, uh, this situation in a way that won't come across as confrontational, comes across as respectful, but also comes across as concerned or serious or, um, you know, focused. I've actually thought this through. Um, and that I have some, I have some questions for you that maybe you can help me, you know, come to a, come, we can come to an agreement on what this final decision is going to be. And it's not a one-sided conversation. So, yeah, I mean, to me, communicating is a very natural and human thing for us to do, but we, we get emotional when we communicate. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people that won't admit that, but there is no form of communication between two people that doesn't involve some level of emotion. And you have to learn how to manage that emotion and, and read that emotion in other people to do it properly. No doubt. I guess on that note, so uh, one thing I wanted to just mention on communication is everybody looks through the world through a lens kind of built on the backs of their experience. So you know, your lens is different than mine, which is different than somebody else. 
And so if you can figure out a little bit, if you get some insight on what that person's lens looks like and you can speak to that, you're going to, you're going to really become a more effective communicator. Absolutely. And, and that, that is uh, completely tied in with that uh, point I made about, you know, being a human being to someone else. You know, when you learn who your people are, when you really get to know somebody uh, that works with and for you or, uh, you know, who you work for, um, when you get to learn who that person is and you really get to know them, you really start to grasp what that lens looks like. And you get to look through it, even though you can't look directly through that lens because you're not them. You may be able to look through it at an angle, right? And understand that maybe you need to change the way you communicate with that person based on their situation. Um, I had a, I was just giving a, a, a lesson to a, some of our junior uh, members the other day at work um, about being an understanding leader um, and, and, and assessing the situation before you jump because I was pressured into, you know, getting into somebody and chewing their butt when I was a, a fairly young petty officer by some senior people who, you know, felt like I was being a little too soft in my uh, leadership approach with somebody. And the second I let my guard down and didn't trust my gut on how to communicate with this person and I, and I took their advice and I let my emotions get the best of me and I just cut into that person in true military form where you go up one side and down the other. Um, I realized that I had made the biggest mistake I could have made because immediately this, 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 uh, this guy starts, you know, getting emotional and he's, he starts spilling the beans on what's going on with him. And he had so much going on at home that I was completely unaware of. That was horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, you know, his mom had stage four cancer. They had an unexpected pregnancy in his family, all these things that, and he's this young guy trying to you know, overcome these big barriers at work. And then, you know, things are not going as, as planned at home. Um, he just couldn't, he couldn't keep it in and he, and he let it out. And I felt horrible for, you know, coming across in an aggressive fashion when I knew my gut was telling me something was off and that I shouldn't do that. And I, I let my guard down. So you're, you know, you're absolutely correct. Their lens is very, very important and it should influence your decision to engage that person in a certain way. Absolutely. I guess well, a couple questions. So one was, you know, you mentioned mentorship. How do we effectively mentor people on our team? Um, well, I, I think that mentorship covers several different aspects of a, of, a, of a relationship with your team members. So you've got the professional slash technical side of your world where maybe, you know, you're a, a technician and these are members of your technical team and mentorship crosses um, between building them up to become better technicians, you know, teaching them the ways, remember those fundamentals we spoke about, really reinforcing those and teaching them on how to embrace them and build on them and become better technicians. So there's mentorship involved there. Um, but, you know, there's also the, um, the human leadership side of this, which isn't technical, it's professional, but it's also just relationship balancing, you know, like um, you're, you're mentoring these people to eventually take your job, to take your position, to serve as a leader to someone else. So you want to, you want to show them through your deeds and not just your words and, and how you treat them, um, you know, how 
to develop into a leader, not just a good technician or a good manager. Because management to me is is a completely like, well, not completely, but a predominantly um, technical or you know business uh, task related thing. Whereas leadership, you don't get to choose if you're a leader or not. Your team dev- you know chooses you as a leader. You, you may be in a position or role of, of power or seniority or um, or a higher level than they are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they identify you as a leader. That mentorship piece where you're establishing the trust and the good relationship between people, a, a, a relationship of mutual respect, where they respect you for maybe being a little hard on them about these standards, maybe being you know a little bit more energetic than they are about things. Um, you know, that's okay. If you're a little more excited about this than they are, they're learning how to become excited about it. You should be instilling in them through your example, the energy and the optimism and the focus that you want them to take. And it doesn't have to be like this structured, formal mentorship program where we sit down and I tell you about how to be excited at work. That's going to come across as kind of, you know, not, it's not going to be necessarily genuine. Some of those things you learn, you know, more deeply from experience with each other alongside without a word spoken. Uh, For example, I was telling you, we used to do those drills to kind of hound, you know, the guys and gals on their fundamentals and really push their fundamentals into their brains through practice, right? We're going to run you through these damage control scenarios and you're going to perform as if this was a real damage control situation. Well, as soon as that alarm bell was ringing to kick off the drill, I was in the passageways jumping up and down, having a good time, high-fiving people, you know, it was like being a coach. I was like, come on, come on, let's go. You know, like we're, we're excited to be here. They were miserable. They didn't, (laughs) they're coming out of, you know, they're coming out of their burden areas or out of the engine room or whatever. They're exhausted. They're tired. This is the last thing they want to be doing. If I come out and I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I look like it's the last thing I want to be doing, how am I possibly building them up? or showing them, you know, mentoring them through my actions that this is, you know, important, that you need to take on a little bit more of this attitude toward it. If all I did was sit back and said, you should be more excited about this, that's not going to make an impact. So, you know, to me, living mentorship is, is, a, is a little bit more important than just, you know, practicing it on paper. And I think that you really just have to be engaged with your team. You have to get down there with them. You have to work alongside them. You have to show them you're willing to be with them when times are rough that you're not going to cut out there and, and go home and leave them working for two or three hours by themselves. You know, those are the types of experiences where they start to form a bond with you. And those, the words that are coming out of your mouth during that bond or the things that you're doing in front of them during that bonding time is really what they start to absorb. And they take that and they, and they internalize it and they don't even realize they're learning from that. And that, that to me is how you truly mentor them. Awesome. And, and I guess the last question I had for you was, like you mentioned that we, you know, we as people like leaders, we need to be able to detect when someone's, uh, you know, just playing kind of a yes man role for us. How do we foster the honesty from maybe people who are below us? How do we like, without just trying to be a lie detector, how do we get them to tell us what they really want? Well, you know, that, that mutual trust I was talking about, this is where it really starts to kind of pay off if they feel like they can trust you with their answer, they'll give it to you. And if they feel like they can trust you um, not to freak out unnecessarily or not to judge them 
um, unnecessarily or, you know, not to treat them differently. Uh, you know, they're doing their own little risk calculation in their head when it comes to how should I answer this? You know, if, if they, they feel like there's going to be severe repercussions for being professional, but being honest, you lost, you lost right there. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm, you know, you're trying to avoid by, by establishing that mutual trust with each other. They should feel like they're comfortable coming to you with their opinions and, and recommendations because you, you do value them. And the minute, you know, you show them you value them and their opinions, even if you don't adopt it fully and run with it, you know, you can, you can communicate that with, with them. I, I find it very interesting that we sometimes feel like we can't tell someone exactly that. Like there's times when I can see my guys holding back and I'll tell them outright, Hey man, don't hold back. I want your honest opinion. I value it. I'm not going to judge you. I, I want to hear what you have to say. And you know, sometimes you have to have that confidentiality during that conversation where whatever you say right now between you and I stays here. That's okay. You know, you're, you're, you're stepping out on a ledge a little bit as a leader doing that, but it's okay to take that risk if you know you can really get the best out of that person by doing it. And it's not going to put you in a, in a, you know, a bad situation otherwise. You know, there's times when I'm like, hey, what's going on with you? And if it's something you don't think I should hear or you shouldn't be telling me, I respect that but let's help you, you know, let's get you to the help you need. Um, if it's not me, if I'm not the one that can give it to you. So yeah, I just feel like that establishment of mutual trust, showing them that you have the ability to be flexible and you're not, uh, super responsive and overly emotional when you receive good or bad news. Um, you know, that steady state kind of response and leadership uh, is very good. And you know, my guys knew when they messed something up, I wasn't going to be happy about it, but they also knew I wasn't going to freak out. People make mistakes. And, and if they know they can trust you with determining that they had good intent and that they really tried to do the right thing, but something didn't go right. That was out of their control. That's a whole different situation than that person doing something they shouldn't have been doing and something negative happening. And, and you should be able to guide their decision-making when they're not with you because they weren't micromanaged and you do have mutual respect that they'll, they'll make the right decisions when you're not standing there looking over their shoulder and that when they have to come confront you because their decision wasn't right or something was, uh, you know, you, they've got something that's maybe not great news to tell you that that mutual, uh, uh trust is, is going to be there as a, as a sure thing to support that conversation. Love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. So, I mean, this is great because, uh, you know, we never got to level repair analysis. So it gives me an excuse to have you back on for another discussion. So I'm excited about that. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, Lucas, you know, I really appreciate you coming back on to talk about leadership today. Um, do you have any plugs like, you, you know, you're starting Marino Consulting. Are you guys accepting work yet or what's the what's the deal? Yes. Um, yep. I'm accepting work. Um, I'm still, you know, balancing all the craziness of transitioning, but I am absolutely open to, um, to talking to people about projects. I love projects. I mean, you'll see me posting on LinkedIn about leadership, engineering stuff and project management stuff. I love the integration of all of those things to support, um, you know, the success of an organization. You know, we were talking a little bit about Laura, We'll talk about that later, but that's one of those tools that I use. That's you know more of a you know a tool uh, to support uh, you know the success of an organization. But to me, all these things kind of converge 
Um, and I love being involved in all of them. And, you know, I won't lie. There's been times where I'm like, man, I would just love to jump out there and do uh, leadership stuff, or I'd love to jump out there and just do reliability engineering stuff, or I'd love to just jump out there and do project management and project leadership stuff. But I just, I, I enjoy all of it so much that I, you know, I would love the opportunity to, to do any of it. And I'm, I'm actually in the position right now where I can do that. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, people want to hang out with me. So yeah, you can, you can reach me through LinkedIn, or um, I just launched uh, MarinoConsultingServices.com. Um, and, uh, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm open for business. Awesome. Yeah. So you'll be, obviously you'll be tagged in the post, but if you're listening to this on a podcast, check the podcast notes for, uh, Lucas's LinkedIn profile, as well as marinoconsulting.com. Uh, Lucas, are you going to be at any conferences later this year or coming up? Um, I'm, I'm trying to plan some, uh, conferences for, uh, 2019 because 18, um, is, is kind of a wrap for me with my schedule, but, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get out to the university of Tennessee in March. We'll see if, um, if I can make it out to their, uh, conference. And, uh, I definitely want to get out to the, uh, SMRP conference next year, the 2019, since I missed, uh, missed this one. Yeah, I heard it. I just talked to Michelle, uh, Ledette Henley this morning and, and it was apparently it was a great conference. Yeah, I would love to uh, to attend that, and uh, I'm definitely going to make that a target for next year. Um, yeah, I think I might try and squeeze out to to uh, the next um, PMI uh, Washington D.C. chapter um, symposium next year uh, for the Project Management Institute as well, because uh, that's a huge. Cha- it's the largest chapter in the world, and they and they have a lot of interesting um, business and uh, and leadership management. Uh, uh, sessions during their, uh, during their symposium. So yeah, I'm going to try and make it out to that one as well. Awesome. So I, I mean, Lucas, you know, thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. For everybody who's still listening, you know, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I did. We definitely took a, a, uh, a long turn away from, uh, at least the question list that I had, but I hope, I hope you learned something. We're going to definitely look at, Lucas, we're going to definitely have you back on to talk about Laura. You know, thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure.